really gives me a great pleasure uh, to introduce our speaker tonight, uh, really a dear colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Nasser uh, Saidi, uh, who will be addressing the topic of competing economic visions in the Arab uprisings. Uh, Dr. Saidi does not need much introduction, and I'm not really uh, being patronizing in any way. Uh, for the last four years, he has been named among the 50 most influential uh, Arabs, and I would say Arab economists in particular, by the influential Middle Eastern magazine. The most uh, influential uh, 50 Arabs in the world, uh, uh, not just in the Middle East itself. Uh, Dr. Saidi has served in many capacities uh, as top economist, and I, I don't have the time to really uh, uh, name um, all the uh, portfolios in which uh, he has served. Uh, in particular, I want to just mention, give you a, a glimpse or a glance of what kind of uh, portfolios he has, uh, uh, in which he has served. Uh, he was the former chief economist uh, and head of external relations of Dubai International Financial Center. Uh, Dr. Saidi is a member of the IMF's uh, regional advisory group uh, for MENA. This is, as you all know, I don't need to tell you how important this particular grouping is. He is a member of the private sector advisory group of the Global Corporate Governance Forum, an institution of the World Bank uh, driving global uh, corporate uh, governance reforms. Uh, governance reforms in particular in our part of the world is, is so critical and so pivotal. As important, Dr. Saidi is uh, uh, chair of the Regional uh, Clean Energy uh, Business Council. To give you an idea about the economist and the humanist who cares a great deal about the environment, I'm truly not exaggerating at all. Uh, last but uh, not least, I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, Dr. Saidi is a member of the LSE uh, Middle Eastern uh, Center in which we're hosting this particular event. And Dr. Saidi has really played a key role, busy as he is. He has taken time and energy to really help us basically construct a, uh, an intellectual uh, project uh, at the LSE. And as you all know, we have just come into being. We are almost uh, two years old. Uh, as you all know, uh, we have spent much time and energy in the last two years discussing the politics and the political drivers behind the Arab uprisings. Think of how many lectures, how many press interviews uh, you have heard over the last two years about contentious politics, about the political causes behind the uh, Arab uprisings. Yet, think of how little we have fleshed out what we call the economic vulnerabilities behind the Arab uprisings. Let me just give you, in a, in a very anecdotal uh, uh, I mean, uh, way, what we mean by the economic vulnerabilities of the Arab uprisings. We estimate, and Dr. Saidi will tell us a great deal, between 40 and 50 percent of the 320 million Arabs live in poverty on basically either $2 a day or less than $2 a day. Out of the $2, basically they spend half of the $2 on basic food necessities, talking about the non-oil producing Arabs. 50% they live in poverty. Unemployment is double digits. In fact, uh, unemployment among the youth is probably 40% in some areas, and 50% in Tunisia and Upper Egypt and what have you. Uh, uh, 
and in this particular sense, uh, uh, what we have in the Arab world, in the non-oil producing countries, really broken economies. It's not just broken institutions, uh, political institutions, broken uh, economies. You have a wasteland. You have de-development as opposed to what we used to we call uh, development. And this is really, in, in many ways, highlights the economic vulnerabilities uh, that the uh, Arab world has faced, in particular since the end of the 1980s. Complicating matters, complicating matters is that the dominant, the rising dominant social forces, political forces in the Arab world lack the economic blueprints, the economic, what Dr. Saidi will call the economic, basically roadmaps that basically offer a future, a vision, an economic vision uh, for the Arab world. Truly, few uh, scholars and economists are as qualified as Dr. Saidi to address this complex topic. I call uh, Dr. Saidi an economist with a conscious, uh, uh, a liberal conscious, and few economists, unfortunately, uh, because he cares very deeply, not just about wealth accumulation, but about development, broadly defined. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Saidi to the LSE. Good evening. Assalamu alaikum, as we say in, in our part of the world. Uh, Faraz, thank you very much for, for having me with you. Um, this is of particular importance to me because, because it is the Middle East Center. Um, and it's a statement. When the center was established, uh, it was very much with the idea that we also wanted to do things differently. Many think tanks, of course, write about the Middle East, about us. But it's always from the other's point of view, looking in on us. It is not us talking to the rest of the world. And this issue of voice is a critical one in our part of the world. So building institutions, in my view, um, is one of the most important ways to get voice out. And it's important that it's happening in LSE. Why? Because uh, much of the talk about the region happens from the U.S. and very much from a U.S.-centric perspective with many biases that comes from being in the United States. So we need alternative voices. So what you're doing here at the center is very important for us, and thank you very much. Um, roadmaps, of course, is a dirty word. It's a four-letter word in our part of the world. We've had so many roadmaps that have led nowhere. But I chose it deliberately because um, we are in a period very much of change, uncertainty, perhaps transition. And the problem with roadmaps is that you don't really know where they're going to lead. And that's what, what we're going to talk about tonight. To begin with, I think it's very important to put this in historical perspective. There are, I believe, four defining moments in post-war history. The first one, of course, is the Suez Canal Crisis, 1956, which meant the end of the British Empire as we had known it until then. And with the Suez Canal Crisis, of course, new countries emerged, new republics, some democracies. But of course, all the countries east of Suez arose. 
The second, of course, defining moment in post-war history, history is, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, which meant the end of the Soviet Empire as we had known it until then. And again, this was a momentous event because it meant that countries again emerged, people removed themselves from um, the constraints of the Soviet Empire, and Europe reformed. Third defining moment is, of course, 2008. In 2008, of course, is the Lehman Brothers tsunami. It's the great financial crisis. It is the end of the American financial empire as we had known it until then. As I like to put it, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, and you're not going to be able to put Humpty Dumpty together again, <coughs> even if you do QE infinity and you supply all the liquidity you want. It is not about liquidity. The fourth defining moment, I think, we are living through now is, of course, the Arab firestorm. I do not, and I never called it an Arab Spring. I always called it an Arab firestorm. Why? Because if you've ever been in a forest that's been very dry, you know that the fire could start just about anywhere. And it's contagious. It just could go anywhere else. But the particular starting point is no of particular import. So it could have happened anywhere, and those are vulnerabilities I will come back to. But as we were talking about a bit earlier, much of the focus of much academic and policy discussion and international discussion has been mainly on the political aspects of what has happened, of political change and transition. But the economic reforms and transformations that are required are fundamental for the success of any political change. And just as the Arab firestorm is just about as much about economic rights, lack of participation, the lack of trickle-down effects, the lack of pull-up effects, just as much as it is about political rights, about human dignity, corruption, bribery, um, and the fact that we live in very extractive institutions that don't allow for um, human participation in, in markets, whether they're labor markets, property markets, and other markets. And therefore, I think it's very important um, that one starts focusing on the economic issues, because the economic issues will make all the difference to the success or failure of political change and eventual transition. And when you think about the vulnerabilities, there are three sets of vulnerabilities. There are political and governance vulnerabilities that are faced by the Arab countries, without exception, not, not only those that sow uh, firestorms and revolts. They have to do with voice and accountability. They have to do with the absence of political rights and representation, corruption, um, civil liberties, absence of press freedom, and therefore, the ability to voice. There are socio-demographic vulnerabilities. We have very young populations in the Arab world. Two-thirds are below 30 years of age. Two-thirds. 
55% of our populations are below 24 years of age. And we've got one of the fastest growing youthful populations in the world. What does that mean? It means that you've got high dependency rates. That means if the head of the household falls sick or dies, the household itself suffers and cannot persist. It also means that as a result of it, when you've got young populations and fast-growing labor forces, if you don't create enough jobs, it leads to large unemployment rates, which we're living today. We'll come back to that in a minute. And we also have a great deal of poverty across the Arab world. So despite the riches that we have in terms of natural resources and financial resources, we also have large disparities between countries in the Arab world and within countries in the Arab world. And those, of course, lead to great social tension that are a source of vulnerability. The other set of sources of vulnerability are, of course, economic ones. Great extent of military spending as a percentage of GDP is an indicator of that vulnerability. When you spend more on the military and so-called defense, which turns out not really to be defense against outside parties, but defending whoever's in power against their own citizens. When you have much more of that spending, you have less to spend on social infrastructure, education, health, welfare, and the rest. We also have the big discrepancies in per capita incomes, going all the way from uh, South Sudan, maybe running at around $700 per capita, to uh, Qatar, one of the countries with the highest per capita incomes in the Arab world, close to 100,000, all within the same culture, within the same geographical map. We also have great vulnerabilities because of spending and the degree of income inequality. As Fawaz was pointing out, you take a household in Egypt, 40% of the average households budget goes on food. And therefore, when you had food price inflation early last year, of food prices rising to 20% per annum, yeah, that means a cut in your real income effectively of close to 10%, drop in your real income. So these types of effects are explosive. I've developed an index, and I'll, I'll make this available to, to, to you, where I've weighted the different factors I mentioned. And um, so demographic, socio-demographic, political, and economic. Not surprisingly, the most vulnerable are countries like Palestine, Yemen, Sudan, Djibouti, Iraq, Syria. The least are the countries in the Gulf, Kuwait, UAE, Qatar because they have fairly well-diversified economies and natural resources which support them. But in the middle vulnerability levels, you have countries like Morocco, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Algeria, and then you go down the list. Saudi Arabia on this ranking is more vulnerable than Tunisia. 
more vulnerable than Tunisia. And um, Tunisia is as vulnerable as Jordan. The point about all this is that these vulnerabilities are there. If they are not treated, they become sources of violence. They become forces for change and wanting to change. <coughs> like any type of vulnerability, you can make it worse or you can make it better. If you already have a predisposition in your family to certain types of diseases or cancer, you can, by the way you live and what you eat and what you do, make it either better or worse. The other point, translated into economic terms, economic policies and social policies can make a difference to those vulnerabilities. So if you take the case of Bahrain, which had relatively little vulnerability if you looked at those sets of indicators, but you took the wrong policy action, you end up in the wrong corner. But out of all this, the central issue today, the central economic policy issue, is job creation. Job creation has got to be the central economic issue. We have a population of about 340 million. And you've got a labor force um, running around 150 million today and expected to grow to 185 million by 2020. 185 million by 2020. So given this youth bulge that we have, by 2020, we need to create 100 million new jobs in the Arab world. So what's 100 million? You need to put that in perspective, right? Well, currently you have 104 million jobs in the Arab world, currently existing. So by 2020, in about 17, 18 years, you have to create nearly as many jobs as exist today. Just put that at the back of your mind. More important is those numbers calculated by ILO, by the World Bank and others, don't take account of the fact that women in the Arab world are not participating at similar levels as they are participating elsewhere. So the average participation rate of women in the labor force is around 25-26%. Whereas it really ought to be if you compare and hold constant and correct for income levels and wealth levels and differences, should be close to 50%. So if you added, as should be, increased labor force participation of women, what you're really talking about is creating something like 120 to 130 million new jobs. What does that mean? It means that, in simple arithmetic, that you need to grow by 6 or 7% per annum on a sustained basis. So these are near Chinese growth rates. The current projections for the country's so-called in transition, Egypt, Tunisia, etc., is that by 2013, they have recovered slightly from 2011-2012 to grow around 2.5%. 2.5%. So how many jobs is that going to create? 
not that many jobs. Um, you need just to create over the next few years, from now to 2009, 2009, 2010, 18 million new jobs just between Morocco and Egypt and Lebanon and Jordan, which don't count anyway, they're small populations. So that is the central economic problem that we're all facing. And to put it very starkly, you have, as we said, 55% of the population below 24 years of age. And the unemployment rate of the youth is around 40%. So it's double the average unemployment rate. So 55% of your population right, has a 40% unemployment rate. Right? A very explosive mix. So this is like Spain and Greece put together and written across the Arab world. So you should not be surprised that, given that background, that we faced the explosive forces of the Arab firestorm. The next step is to say, well, what are we going to do about it? And, and what do we know about transitions? The first is, point is that not all transitions end up in success. There's also many cases of political change that did not end up in success. And we tend to be short-minded. We tend to forget our own history. Back in the 50s and the 60s, we also had a series of coups and revolutions, right? That overthrew despots and autocrats and long-established regimes inherited from the post-colonial world. What did we get after that? Well, we did not get sustained economic growth or development. We did not, did not get democracy and freedom. Indeed, right now, we're overturning precisely those regimes that got into power through coups and revolutions in the 50s and 60s, and who themselves became despots and autocrats. So the point is that we've had lots of bright promises, but dismal results. And the other point, of course, is that overturning a despot or an autocrat does not automatically translate into freedom and democracy. Just because you've thrown out a Mubarak or a Gaddafi or somebody else does not mean that suddenly you're going to get Jeffersonian democracy, flowers all over the place, and freedom and all the rest. The results typically are the opposite. And just to put that in perspective, Egypt in the mid-1950s, 1953, 54, had a per capita income level at the same level as South Korea. Today, just to put those numbers there, South Korea has a per capita income in real terms of around 32,000, and Egypt has around 6,500, right? Around $500 per month, per head. So be careful what you wish for. But let's also look at the results of political change. If you look at the sample of countries that have gone through successful transitions, and I stress successful transitions, not those also have failed. 
on average, when you have the transition, when you have the change, real output growth declines by around 3 to 4% in the event year when you have it. Unemployment rises by 1 to 1.5%. Fiscal deficits uh, go up. Investment goes down by about 20%. And these are averages across a sample of countries. Now, second point is that recovery is not immediate. It's not like as if you cut off the head of the despot and the autocrat and bravo, you have a new constitution, you have elections, and then <clears throat> things pick up again. No. It usually takes three to four years before the new economic policy regime gets established that you've invested in institution that gives you institutions that give you credibility and only then does output start recovering investment, foreign direct investment start coming in and you start the recovery, you start the recovery process. And if we compare the, where we are in terms of that, um, what's happening in the Arab countries in transition is about that level. Libya recovered a bit more quickly because it was oil output. So you stop the oil output, you reestablish security, the pumps start going again, etc. That does not mean that you create your jobs. Um, the oil economy has precious little to do with the non-oil economy. It is highly capital intensive. It does not create jobs. What you need to look at for the oil producers in particular is the non-oil sector. That's what's critical for job creation. Second set of observations I want to make about political transitions and political change and what we've learned from countries that have undergone that is the relationship between inequality and eventual democracy. And the results are stark and, and very clear. Um, the greater the degree of inequality that you have before transition between people, particularly in terms of income and consumption, the greater the likelihood of violent conflict emerging to resolve those inequalities. Second, there's a great deal of interaction between political freedom and inequality. And it does not necessarily mean that the greater degree of inequality equates into a higher degree of freedom post-transition. Third set of observations, even more damning, is that you have a higher likelihood of violent conflict emerging if you have a combination of a high degree of inequality plus large natural resources. That's exactly what you would expect because if you've got large natural resources and they were taken by the few before, associated therefore with a great deal of inequality, you are more likely to have violent change as people try to take possession of property rights and of natural resources. Net result is that the greater the degree of inequality, the more the natural resources and your dependence on them, the less likely you're going to end up with regimes which are democratic and with a great deal of protection of civil rights, human rights, and political rights. Let me just conclude all that to say the following, that um, 
we are perhaps in the beginning of a period of change and transition is likely going to take much longer. So the regime shifts are likely to follow different paths in different countries and with different outcomes. And the lessons are that even successful transitions, transitions which are completed, that don't end up in failed states or something like that, may take up to a decade or more. Take the case of Indonesia, probably the best example for what you might expect maybe out of an Egypt. Second, the quality of leadership matters a lot to the outcome, as does the posture of the military. We need to remind ourselves that we've lived in nearly all our countries in, with regimes that have been dominated by the military, supposedly to protect us. How they react during the transition makes a big difference to the outcome. Third, if you have constitutional and institutional electoral reforms, um, you have better outcomes as a result during transition. Fourth and more troubling is that the greater the degree of violence during the, during the transition, the less likely you are to have democratic results and outcomes. And those effects are permanent, they're not temporary. So bottom line is, um, we don't know uh, what the outcomes are going to be. And removing despots and autocrats does not necessarily lead to freedom and democracy, nation building, good governance, and institutions. More important than that, I mentioned the point about leadership. The point about transitions is that these are not linear systems. Um, Caterpillars become butterflies, and we know that natural process, right? There are physical laws and biological laws which tell us how a caterpillar goes through and how long it takes, and eventually becomes a butterfly. This is not a natural system, <clears throat> and this is not a linear system. By, by that I mean that you're not necessarily going from A to B. These are dynamic systems. And dynamic systems can be path-dependent, by which I mean that if you perturb the system and goes onto one path, it may persist on that path. There's no reason for it to come back to the previous path it was in. So we don't know whether we're going to go from A to B or A to Z. Now, the additional difficulty is that we are in a period not only with a lack of leadership in the Arab world, but there's also no common vision. There's no common model. There is no roadmap, to use that dirty word. What difference does that make? Let me contrast with the case of Europe, with the fall of the Berlin Wall. When the Berlin Wall fell, Europe turned to the countries behind the Berlin Wall and said, you are welcome to join the club. There is the acquis communautaire, the sets of laws, regulations, and institutions 
that we have put together over a number of years. And if you want to join the club, this is what you need to acquire. This is the Aki Communautaire. And therefore, you had the roadmap. You also had a common market, which meant that you could sell your goods, you could sell your labor. And there were common institutions that helped you to do that. And the European Union created the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which helped finance the transition, which helped move you from point A to point B. We have none of that in the Arab world. We have an absence of roadmaps, an absence of vision. We don't have institutions for collective and concerted action to address the challenges of, of transformation. And as a result of that, over and beyond the experiences of countries that have gone through transition, it is therefore more likely that it's going to take longer and with more uncertain outcomes in our part of the world because of this lack of vision, of clarity, and, and of roadmap. And therefore, the cost in terms of foregone output, employment opportunities, investment, is likely to be larger as a result of that. And of course, the fundamental problem is that not only do you have political uncertainty, nearly all the countries in transition are going to have elections next year. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know what type of constitution is going to emerge in Tunisia or in Egypt, and who the leadership is that's going to emerge out of that, and what are the economic policies that they will want to implement. As a result of that, international institutions like the IMF and the World Bank are hesitant, hesitant to commit because these governments are not necessarily representative. And who knows if they sign a piece of paper with you <laughs> that the next government is going to honor and respect the covenants and commitments they've signed. And therefore, greater economic policy uncertainty leads to worse outcomes, lower investment, uh, higher unemployment, uh, lower foreign direct investment. The next point, of course, is that um, we need to change the economic models that we've been highly dependent on. It is not only a matter of political change. We also need to change our approach and our paradigm of, of economic development. I mentioned those vulnerabilities. And it's not only that we have those vulnerabilities, but we have to address them through policies that will affect structural change. And I'll come back to some of those structural changes that are required. And we need to do it at a time at which the global economy is living through the biggest shift we've seen in global economic and financial geography, a tectonic shift from the West to the East. 40% of the world's output, more than 44% of the world's output at purchasing power parity today, rates today, is produced now in Asia. 14.5% in the US less in Europe, around 12%. China is going to supersede the United States by 2015, 2016, as the biggest economy in the world in nominal terms. So 
not only do we have to face the realities of the own, our own changes, but you're also going to have to do it in a very, very changed economic world. And I'll come back to what that means and what you need to do about it. So your economic environment is not going to be supportive. In particular, Europe, Europe has a big impact on the Maghreb countries and somewhat less on the Mashriq countries. When Europe output declines by 1%, output in the Maghreb goes down by 0.4 or 1%. Immediate strong impact. Less so when the US declines by 1%, about 0.2% effect on the Maghreb countries. And of course, as anybody from North Africa knows, they're the first people to get thrown out for the job, right? When you want to throw people out of a job, it is your brown-colored North Africans that will tend to go first. And those are the Boazizis that end up going home. They face no unemployment insurance, no social safety nets. They go into the informal economy and try to get a job. They then hit government bureaucracies, and they go mad. So that is what we are living through. So I know we're going to have, I hope, an interactive discussion. So I've set down a little roadmap of what I call 10 things <coughs> that should be imperative on the policy agenda in order for us to, to move forward. A sort of wishful roadmap. Um, I'm going to give them without any particular order, although, that you, you, although you'll see that there is some logic in the way I order them. The first, of course, is you need a political and governance transformation across our countries for better representation, voice, accountability. But you have two major fault lines that we all need to address. The first fault line is the role of religion and the state. What is the relationship between religion and the state? What is the relationship between Islam and the state? That, of course, is something that the West killed substantial number of millions of people over the past 250 years, but eventually it got resolved very costly, but it got resolved when you have some separation. You have a move towards greater secularism. The second fault line is the role of the military and security services. What role do they have in the state? Will they remain dominant as they are in Egypt? And remember that it's not just a matter of military spending. In Egypt, of course, um, many of the state-owned enterprises are dominated by the military. They are a sub-economy in, in, their, in their own right. And the third point, of course, is that um, how do you make sure that we end up with pluralism, that we respect the cultural, ethnic, and religious diversity of the peoples of the Middle East? And we need to keep at the back of our minds 
that we, out of all countries in the world, are the most diverse in terms of peoples, cultures, religions. We are the cradle of it all. The rest didn't even exist. And for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, we were <laughs> the place where you had stability. It is only in the past century that we've entered the period of strong instability. That does not mean that I'm going to make a call for us to go back to the time of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> it didn't leave us too many institutions. The legacy is not there. But the issue of pluralism, I think, is a central one. How do we move forward? Second is educational transformation. Part of the reason why we have high unemployment rates on a sustained basis is that the link between education and employment is broken. We need educational reform. We spend enormous amounts, if you look at tertiary spending by our governments or our economies on tertiary education. We are some of the highest in the world. But the skills, the knowledge generated by our graduates or given to our graduates is not linked to jobs and job prospects and the skills required in the labor force. And you can easily see why that equilibrium came about. The government said, well, if you want to get a job uh, in government, then you have to have a degree. And if you have a university degree, all the better. So everybody scrambled to get university degrees. Since everybody was trying to get university degrees, and you wanted to please your population because you were populist in terms of approach, you spent a lot on university education. You spend much more per capita on university education than we spend on primary education where it makes all the difference. Right? So these are very distorted. So not only do we not teach the skills and give the knowledge to people so that they can become employed, We've also distorted it the other way around. So it contributes to inequality. It contributes to bad social outcomes. So educational reform has got to be a mainstay. And just to put that again in perspective, think of the enormous revolution a country like Korea made. Just to convince yourself that these things can be done. They are not impossible. Third is labor market reforms and the empowerment of women. Um, women's participation rate, as we said, is around 25-26%. It ought to be around 50%. Um, you don't have to be a very clever econometrician, but if you make a back-of-the-envelope calculation, you could raise GDP by something like 20% on a sustained basis in every single country in the Arab world if females were to participate at the same level as they ought to. They don't. And of course there are many restrictions. But labor laws militate against them. For example, we don't allow for flexible employment. You cannot work a few hours. You have to work full time. So that militates against apprenticeships and internships and anybody who wants to spend a short time in the labor force and come in and out of the labor force. 
Um, fourth is fiscal reform. We're probably one of the few countries in the world, such as in Kuwait, where you actually have representation without taxation. Um, we've got to start changing. Fiscal reform is critical, particularly in the GCC countries. As long as you are dependent on oil revenues for 85% of government revenues, you will continue to have a highly uncertain economic growth rate and outcomes. And so fiscal reforms are going to be critical. Five, economic diversification. Not only are the oil exporters highly dependent on their oil and gas revenues, both for government revenue and for their export, 85 to 90 percent of our exports are oil and gas. Our contribution to world exports is 1 percent. 1 percent. Okay? And that, of course, reflects the fact that you're highly dependent on oil and gas, you haven't diversified, and you haven't integrated into the world economy. And until you have that economic diversification, it's difficult to see how you're going to be creating the jobs required for the young people. Six point, um, the shift in global economic geography necessitates a shift in economic, financial, and investment policies towards the East. All the agreements that we have on free trade and investment are with Europe and the United States. Indeed, we have agreed, for example, um, domestic content. We've agreed rules of origin with the European Union, but we have not agreed among each other. That we have not agreed among each other. So we will freely trade with Italy and Europe, but we have not agreed among each other how to trade and what is domestic content. Net result is intra-Arab trade is the lowest in the world, and the bulk of it is oil. So that reflects both your policies in terms of trade, as well as the lack of economic diversification. You just produce the same types of goods, so what is it that you're going to be trading? But in the meantime, the world has changed, and China now is dominant, and Asia now is dominant. So on top of all the other changes that you need to make, what you need to do is think about how you're going to put yourself into the new global supply chain that has emerged into the new Silk Road. Your future is no longer with Europe or the United States. Your future is with the East. So you need to shift all your trade policies, your investment policies, and your financial policies. Seventh point is, is the transformation of the state itself. Much of the problem is, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> sorry. Take your time, I'll take a break for a minute, so we'll... Um, I've been talking too much. <coughs> I don't think so. Just... Seventh point is the transformation of the state. And there are microeconomic aspects to that, facilitating transactions, lowering the number of permits, the number of days it takes to do things. Those are very important. But 
And here's the critical point. You have to avoid them being a box-ticking exercise. What do I mean by that? I'm sure you're all familiar with the flagship publication of the World Bank, Cost of Doing Business. Now, if you looked at the cost of doing business, you'll see that Saudi Arabia is now ranked among the top 15, the best, even surpassing the UAE and Dubai. Now, that should be an eye-opener for anybody. Now, how is that done? Well, the, <coughs> the World Bank, <coughs> the World Bank has all these indicators, right? One of them, for example, is, is there a minimum capital requirement to establish a business? If you remove the minimum capital requirement, you jump up the ranks. So, they looked at it and said, well, you know, do we really need minimum capital? No, take it off. And you jump from rank 67 to jump rank 34. Then you look at a couple of other things, and then you say, well, okay, I can simplify this, simplify that, and now I'm ranked 13th or 14th. It matters not that you cannot get into the kingdom, right? To establish. <laughs> so you have to be careful on how you do these. What I mean by that is that it has to be inclusive. The major problem is that if you look at the cost of doing business of the World Bank, the top three reformers, top three reformers, are precisely countries which are in revolt and revolution. Egypt and Tunisia were among the top five reformers of the Arab world in the past five years. Right? The problem with that was not that it was the absence of liberal policies. No, they had privatization, liberalization, you name it, you down the book, right? And the World Bank came in and gave them kudos, bravo, you're going the right way, and IMF and everybody else wrote brilliant reports. The problem is that people were still living in the graveyards of Cairo. The problem is that it did not trickle down. The problem is that it was clientelism. And so it never got distributed. Inequality became worse. So you need to think about socially inclusive policies, not just how you reduce transactions costs. Related to that, of course, is that you have to wean away the private sector from high dependence on government. And so not only do you need to become more socially inclusive, but you need to make sure that it is the private sector that creates the jobs moving forward. And so on top of all that, it means that you're going to have to reduce the role of the state. Today, much of the role of the state is to provide subsidies for food and fuel. But the problem again is that the subsidies don't go to the intended people they were meant to go for. It's estimated, for example, in Egypt that 80% of the subsidies go to the top 20% of the population. To the top 20% of the population. The guy who lives in Jazeera, who's got a beautiful villa with seven bedrooms, drives, drives a Hummer, right? Um, gets the majority of the benefits. So you have to reorient that. You have to get the social safety nets. And of course, you need to readjust wages and 
outcomes for public sector employment versus private sector employment. Why would I want to work in the private sector if I can get a nice cushy job in the public sector, right? I'll go there at 9 o'clock, leave at 2 o'clock, have one hour break, have five prayer breaks, a couple of shishas and coffee, right? I mean, why would I bother? The incentives are, no, are not there. So the big push that you need to do is to give, give that for the private sector. Eighth, and probably critical, is you need to build the institutions and the capacity to manage change and institutional reform. That's a big word. But believe me, for somebody like me, who, when I went back to Lebanon at the time at which we were trying to rebuild the country, the capacity to change, to have the institutions, the ministries, the agencies that actually know how to implement it and undertake reform is the critical item. You may have the most brilliant ideas of economic reform, but what makes you fail is a little cog, cog in the wheel. Ah. So how do you build the capacity? And this is where technical assistance and help from the outside can be very important. Nine, you might be surprised at this one, building local currency financial markets. Now this might sound esoteric. Why is this man talking to us about building local financial markets? The reason is that if you look across the region, 85% of the companies in our region are small and medium enterprises and family-owned businesses. And if you look at the sources of finance in our region and where the finance goes, SMEs only get 8% of all the loans. Only 8% of all the loans. If you look at SM, the SME sector as a total, only 26% of SMEs actually have a banking relationship and a bank account. So how can you build a business and grow it if you don't have a bank relationship? Only one in 10 households in Egypt has a banking relationship. Now, net result of that is if you don't have the banking relationship, you don't have a bank account, you're excluded really from the formal sector. You're excluded from being able to borrow for your business. It also means there's lack of housing finance. Our debt markets are severely underdeveloped. You can't get a mortgage. So net result, if you're a young Egyptian and you want to get married, not only are you delaying now the age at which you get married because you don't have the income and the housing prices have gone through the roof, but on top of that, even if you did find a house and you found a mate, you don't have the finance for it. Net result, you have three generations living together. And I'm at LSE, you can tell me exactly how much social cohesion and uh, can, can be engendered when you have three generations living together, right? With the mother and two, three in-laws, or perfect recipe for harmony. <laughs> so developing local currency financial markets is critical because of 
the relationship they have with overall economic development, but also in terms of what you want to do for housing finance, a critical one, SMEs, family-owned enterprises. And, of course, it gives you relative immunity and protection from financial crises. A major lesson from the Asian financial crisis that the Asian countries learned perfectly well was to grow their local currency financial markets so they weren't dependent on capital flows coming from Europe and the United States. And therefore, that gave them immunity. And if you look at the great financial crisis, those countries that had the better developed local financial markets, local currency financial markets, were the most immune to the big shocks coming from Europe and the United States. Finally, um, number 10, we need to build um, regional institutions. You have to rebuild the Arab League, not just reform it, you have to rebuild the Arab League so it becomes an instrument for collective and concerted action. How many of you know that we have an Arab Monetary Fund? Can you? How many people know that we have an Arab Monetary Fund? Okay, that's about maybe 15% of you. We actually do have something called an Arab Monetary Fund. It's in Abu Dhabi. It was meant to be doing what the IMF does, but for the Arab world. The fact that you haven't heard of it tells you something about its effectiveness. Um, why are these central institutions important? Because they force you to work collectively. And given the nature of the problems that we have, we need to work collectively to face those issues. And with that, we also need to create an Arab Bank for Reconstruction and Development. We are the only region in the world that doesn't have a dedicated bank for reconstruction and development. Africa does, Asia does, Latin America does, even the Europeans created one. And the reason why you need that is because we need to invest in infrastructure and logistics. We need many regional projects which are in cooperation. We need to integrate infrastructure, transport, electricity, water, gas, you name it, go down the list, would all benefit from greater regional integration. If you believe in solar power and the possibility that much of the Maghrib could be a source of concentrated solar power, CSP, well, even if you produced it, you've got to get it to Europe you've got to get the integrated power networks and link them up. And the same is true for the Gulf countries. But if you want to help in the transition of many of those countries, you cannot leave them on their own. Leaving them on their own runs the danger that instead of getting good outcomes, you're going to get very bad outcomes. But if you go to them with the promise of financial help, with the promise of opening up markets, then you stand a better chance. So, how do we move forward? Um, first point, I think, just to end, is that um, this is a historical moment for us. And those in my generation thought that uh, when the Berlin Wall fell, 
that we'd also have a transformation across the Arab world because many of the regimes that are now falling were rescued by the Soviets. It did not happen. When they were left by the Soviets, the West, to use that word, came and supported them and kept them in power. So we never got the change. So this is the time at which we have to own our own, trans our own transformation. We have to own this. Nobody else can come and tell you this is what you need to do. And there aren't any models. Um, so it's not just a matter, in my mind, just of a couple of countries. This is, a, I think, a battle for the Arab soul, not just rebuilding a few countries. Second, if you're going to have concerted action, somebody needs to do it. And it's not the US, and it's not Europe, both of whom are leaderless and clueless when it comes to dealing with the Arab world. So this is a moment of opportunity for the GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. Why do I say that? Because they have every incentive to make sure that you have stability, that they have stability in their neighborhood. And second, they have the financial resources to make a difference. So the GCC countries need to do two things. They need to sign free trade agreements with the other countries of the region, free trade and investment agreements, that would open up their markets. And the other benefit that would come from that is the fact that the GCC countries today are much more integrated with Asia and the new global supply chain of the new Silk Road. Today, China is the number one client for Saudi oil. It already replaced the United States back in 2010. And today, it's the biggest partner for the GCC countries. And it's getting more and more integrated. India is next door to them as well. So if you think of how you want to reorient trade policies and financial policies, one avenue, one channel is through the GCC. So by integrating them more closely with the GCC countries, you stand a better chance to get maybe concerted action. The question, of course, will be, will the GCC countries own up to this historical opportunity? As usual, you need leadership. And it could just be that places like maybe UAE, Qatar, might be at a turning point and have enough vision. And finally, I think rebuilding those central institutions, uh, Arab League, Arab Monetary Fund, creating an Arab Bank for Reconstruction and Development are critical moving forward. Um, an ABRD could easily be put together. And the financial requirements are there. The financial resources are there. GCC countries have earned, on average, $10 more per barrel, per barrel of oil that they've exported over the past three years, both of, because of the Arab firestorm and because of geopolitical risk related to Iran. 
This year, they'll probably have a current account surplus of some $430 billion, $430 billion, much of which will go to that very lucrative investment in U.S. Treasury bills, which earns you a negative real return. So you need to start thinking long term. And so perhaps if they came in and participated and put up the capital and the EBRD and the Asian Development Bank, which has a great deal of experience with countries which have a similar problems to we do, might stand a good chance. So let me just end there. But I want to end with, uh, although I'm an economist, I also like poetry. And I'm going to end with a poem, uh, which I hope you will like. It's a poem by uh, an Alexandrian poet, um, Egyptian Alexandrian poet, called Constantine Kavafi, Kavafis. And it's called, But Wise Men Perceive Approaching Things. And here's the part. Men know what is happening now. The gods know the things of the future, the full and sole possessors of all lights. Of the future things, wise men perceive approaching things. Their hearing is sometimes, during serious studies, disturbed. The mystical clamor of approaching events reaches them, and they heed it with reverence, while outside on the street, the peoples hear nothing at all. So let's hope we will be wise. Thank you, Nasser, for a very comprehensive and sober analysis, really of past, present, and future. I know you have many questions, so uh, please. I'm Charles, I'm a student at um, my, my question is about uh, the new Silk Road, which uh, I presume refers to Mr. Sinfendorfer's book, who, who, who wrote on the subject. But uh, he actually he wrote it um, just before the Arab Spring. Obviously, but uh, I, I think there, there are, as you described, huge challenges for the future. What well, are the Arab Firestone? Huge challenges for the, uh, the future to create 100 million jobs. And uh, I, was, uh, I was wondering if um, the point, point six in your, your roadmap orientating towards Asia is, is structurally possible in the Middle East, because I, um, I tried to learn Chinese when I, I lived in the Middle mm -hmm. East, and I found the resources there were, were lacking. It was very difficult. Sure. And uh, there, there just seems to be a lack of, of the infrastructure to deal with this new reorientation to, to the East. And uh, I, was, I was wondering on the other side of the field. Sure. Let me explain. Right. Thanks. Sure. Um, there, there are several dimensions to this. One of them is already happening, and it's on infrastructure and logistics. Um, China now already has a pipeline that extends all the way to Kazakhstan. So if you just look at the geography, um, that pipeline also means roads, right? Once you extend a, a pipeline, you have a road next to it. And the strategic importance for China is that within 
potentially three to four years, that pipeline and road can reach Turkey. What that means is that China would then be able to export its goods directly by rail, by land, by truck, etc., all the way from China direct to the EU without going through a sea route. Big, enormous saving. But as it does so, it also develops the countries of Central Asia. So those roads, those pipelines, will lead to an economic revolution in Central Asia, which is starting to happen right now. But those links can also be extended south, down to Afghanistan, Iran, and therefore the Gulf. So you can easily reach the Gulf from that. But as you do that, it means that for the Gulf countries in particular, the oil exporters, Iraq, all the way forward, they have access to their biggest market in, in Asia. So that, that's one aspect. And the integration of infrastructure and logistics is also happening through ports and airports. China, for example, today uses the Jabal Ali port in the UAE for much of its exports to the rest of the Middle East and the GCC. They big, bring in enormous container ships that come to Jabal Ali that get discharged in less than six hours. And I'll explain why that's important. They are then re-exported or added value to in Dubai to get re-exported across the Arab world and into Africa. And into Africa. Why, why is the six hours important? Because if you look across the, the sea to India, to India, it can take up to one week, ten days for that same ship to discharge. So if you're exporting to India, you export to UAE first, and then you export to India in smaller vessels, because otherwise it's too costly. But what's happening, and what I see happening, is that the ability to bring in raw materials and semi-processed goods means you allow for manufacturing and industry to emerge. And that's exactly what's happening across the Gulf, but in particular in Dubai and the UAE. And as you do that, it means that you create employment opportunities. It means you're part of that global supply chain. Now, if you extend that to Egypt, which has a labor force which is relatively skilled and very cheap, then you get a better opportunity to enter the global supply chain. What you need to do is to invest in the infrastructure and the port and airport facilities. Have you ever been to Cairo Airport? Then you know what I mean. <laughs> if you go to Riyadh Airport, Riyadh Airport on the outside looks magnificent, but it's totally dysfunctional. It was not studied for people and for the flow of goods. It was studied to look good. It's a white camel in the middle of the desert, right? So. How you do those makes a big deal of difference. If you sign a free trade agreement, it makes also a big difference. Free trade agreements reorient trade. And we've signed free trade agreements. Morocco has a free trade agreement with the US. So what does Morocco sell to the US? 
some dates, some phosphates, etc., 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 but much of it is simply raw material with very little value added. That is not the way you create jobs and employment. So you need to, to, re, you need to rethink those. I'm going to take four or five questions because time is, please. Thank you, Dr. Saeed, for uh, a truly uh, inspiring uh, talk. But uh, let me sort of put in one or two uh, questions about uh, the sort of roadmap that you suggested. I think one of the issues that sort of came up immediately from what you've just said is um, what kind of uh, area of activity industrial, uh, if you like, a, a sort of a, a, a sector that can drive, can be the springboard for uh, job creation? Is it simply integration into uh, the uh, uh, global uh, 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 supply uh, network and a, so a diverse set of activities? Or is there anything in the current uh, economic structures of the countries of the region that requires uh, a direct, uh, uh, di directly being addressed for productive activities and for job creation. Uh, I mean, all sorts of things come to mind uh, from uh, the total uh, 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 the, the, the huge dependence on, on uh, import of food, from the huge dependence on import of basic consumer uh, goods. Is uh, are a million, uh, 100 million jobs going to be created by being integrated, or is there a lot that needs to be focused sure. uh, internally? Sure. Um, I think that's sort of the, the, sort of the key, key question I want to ask. But I also want to say one, to ask one, one other thing is the 2008 uh, financial uh, crisis, global crisis. Is that sort of do you perceive of that as only a case of uh, the shift east or a shift in terms of, uh, of, of thinking. Please. Please pass because our time is very precious, okay. unfortunately. So, question at a time. You talked about the GCC kind of becoming the backbone of Arab integration, economic integration, and uh, but during your talk, uh, one of the issues that kind of really presented itself really clearly was the absence of institutions in the Middle East and the fact that states aren't necessarily, there's not much state, real state power. I'm not talking about being able to have massive military, but actually state power. And especially in the GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, um, how are they going to underwrite this integration if they kind of lack state power themselves. Because as far as I, I, my understanding is for a regional hegemon to kind of create, uh, distribute these uh, benefits or whatever, they need themselves to have sufficient state power. And also, how do you create a private sector that's been weaned from the you know, state, um, when the state in a lot of these countries is still so weak and um, there's so much uh, 
really two great questions. I mean, is there political will? I mean, let's be blunt about it. Why should the Gulf Cooperation Council invest in democratization, in... I didn't, I didn't say that they would invest in democratization. Well, I mean, that's institutionalization. And, and the second question, oh, I mean, a right. great question sure. about private, productive private yeah. sectors. Let's, let's get right to that. I did that deliberately. Yeah. Um, this, this issue about employment and, and New Silk Road and the rest. Um, the point, I think several points and very quickly. Number one, you need to liberalize services, the services sector. So I think the services sector is a very promising one for job creation. But also the fact that you are not internationally integrated means that many of the local activities that you could put in place are not put in place because you've had highly protected sectors which have been dominated by governments and state-owned enterprises. Take the case of Egypt, take the case of Syria, take the case even of Morocco. When you liberalize certain sectors such as the telecom sector which got liberalized in quite a few countries across the Middle East, you immediately got a lot of industry coming up around that. So I think part of the approach is to say, well, services can be very important. And we've seen that. You, you've had a boom in tourism across the Arab world when you opened up and allowed the tourism sector to go ahead and you freed it from government. Education. Free that from government. Health services. All of those benefit from the strong demographics that we have and therefore can be sources, great sources of, of employment. Now, if you actually get much more integrated across the region, for example, Algeria and Morocco have closed borders. You cannot go from, practically not go from Algeria to Morocco. But if you did that, then you have enormous resources in Algeria. Um, you have population in Morocco. Instead, both of you go to Spain and to Italy to get jobs instead of trying to create jobs among you. I'll come back to the issue of political will. So I think there's quite a bit that, that can be done for, for creating it. Um, the GCC, I think the question quickly on the GCC. Um, 
The state is not weak in the GCC. In fact, if anything, the state is very strong in the GCC. Um, they've got performing state-owned enterprises. I came in on one of them yesterday called Emirates Airlines. Highly profitable and one of the fastest growing. And if you look across the range, you go to Sabic, you go quite a few, they're very strong. And the state is extremely well organized, much better than people perceive. The issue is whether or not they'll see a political incentive. <coughs> the political incentive is not, of course, that they want to see democracy spread and freedom spread itself across the Arab world, no. But they need to protect themselves. They need stability in countries like Egypt and the rest of the Arab world because instability is going to flow over to them whether they like it or not. Remember, Yemen is there. Yemen now has an unemployment rate of its young people well in excess of 50%. Saudi graduate unemployment, unemployment of Saudi graduates is over 40% and 60% of course for women. <coughs> and so their own young people are saying we cannot continue on this. So I think you're going to see some changes and reforms going on there. But I think the biggest incentive the biggest incentive they have is to avoid instability. And the easiest way to deal with that is through greater economic integration. Already that is happening. You've got what maybe one and a half million Egyptians working in working in Saudi. Remittances are very important. It's one of the most important conduits for linkages. And you can increase that. Um, so I don't know whether we'll eventually get round and have the political will. That's why I mentioned Qatar and the UAE, because you've got young leadership. I don't see the leadership coming at the moment from Saudi Arabia, but more likely could be from Qatar and, and uh, the UAE. I didn't mean to exclude informal networks or civil society at all. I think that's, that's part of generating much more inclusive development than, than we've had. <coughs> Except that, of course, in our region, laws militate against civil society and civil society organizations. So part of the reform is to facilitate associations, unions, and the rest. I don't see that happening very, very quickly. I don't think you'll see that as a priority. I think you'll get more political formations emerging because that's part of the discussion of new constitutions and how do you establish um, a new set of um, political rights. So I think that's where you will get it as opposed to where you might also need it in terms of education, employment, and the private sector. Um, population, of course. Um, but the problem with, with Egypt is that for many years, Egyptian manufacturing and industry lived behind protective walls and continues to live behind protective walls and remained in the hands of the state. As a result, if you look at labor productivity growth, if you look at the degree of innovation, it's been very low. So the point, of course, is that you need to remove those from the, the government sector, put them more into the private sector. 
But the way it happened during the so-called reform years is that instead of creating competition, you went from government monopolies to private monopolies. And that's the reason why you didn't get innovation. People were very happy getting the rents that they got out of monopoly positions. And so vast wealth got created, but very few jobs or highly productive jobs got created. And that's why you've got so much migration and so much of a, of a brain drain in the Arab world. We don't work in our own countries. We go become brilliant somewhere else. So obviously it can be a very important market, but you need to open up that market. Uh, allow Saudi money to come in. Allow Gulf money to come in. Build up the infrastructure. Let the Chinese build an airport for you. I agree. The, 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 the issue, however, at the moment, um, I was in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. The, um, the old, let's call them the old guard, does not want to invest. They're worried that they're going to face a witch hunt. So a guy like Sawiris, for example, one of Egypt's richest men, is holding back for many reasons, as you can imagine, contribute to that. Now, the new arrivals are more consumer-oriented. They're just as business and savvy as, as the old, but they might have much less of an outward orientation. They're well-connected, and the danger is that this might perpetuate an inward-looking view of Egypt's economic development as opposed to an external one. That, I think, is a danger. Uh, Turkish model. <coughs> we tend to forget that Turkey, as we see it today, is the result of more than a century of evolution. Kamala, the Turk, transformed Egypt, uh, transformed Turkey down to the alphabet and turned it into a very secular state and broke the link between religion and state. Extremely important. We're seeing some chinks in that model recently with Erdogan, but a very different development than, than what we've had. Second, the role of the military was, of course, extremely important in secularizing the state. Third is that many of the reforms that Turkey undertook undertook under the guise that they were going to be joining the European Union. And this was sold to the population under the idea that we need to do all these because we want to join the European Union. Not because of, I mean, this was the way of selling it and motivating it politically. Not that they were particularly interested, nor do I think that the Turks are interested in joining Europe. Why should they? They already have the customs union, so they got much of the benefit, economic benefits of being part of, part of Europe. Um, in addition, I think for historical reasons, um, um, to put it bluntly, 
Um, the Arabs are Arabs, the Persians are Persians, and the Turks are Turks. Um, and there's a great deal of history that has gone under the bridge. And for many of the Arab countries, uh, Turkey, of course, represents the Ottoman Empire. So if you come to them and say, well, maybe you should be adopting a Turkish model, whatever that may mean, uh, for them that means that's harking back maybe to the back of their minds to some Turkish hegemony and extension of Turkish power. Um, but the main point, of course, is one of secularism, which I come back to. Uh, it, it is a choice, to my mind, not of any particular model, but how do you introduce secularism? How do you have this break and the separation of religion and state? That's why I think an Indonesian model or a Malaysian model, or even better, a Singaporean model, uh, is much more interesting. I was in Singapore just two days ago. I don't know how many people are familiar with Singapore, but Singapore, of course, is, has Malays, Chinese, and Indians. And they force integration. And they force them in terms of urban living, in terms of education, in terms of health, etc., to avoid any disparities arising. I think there may be much more to learn there from the East in terms of Malaysia, Indonesia, than from Turkey itself. But Fawaz knows much more about this than I do. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.